0: Uh, Today, we're going to talk about the terrific and fun topic of being persecuted. Everyone loves this topic um, because no one loves it. It's awful. It's an awful thing. But it is part of the life of the Christian church. And so Jesus writes part of his letters, and he writes this section to the church in Smyrna. A church that was probably planted out of Paul's efforts in Ephesus. And it lands in this little town of Smyrna, and we see that this is one of only two letters, in the seven letters, that's written to a church that Jesus doesn't have something to correct. But he's giving them a warning and encouragement, and he's also telling them that pain is coming. And as we have talked about in the last few weeks, these letters are written to seven specific churches in a specific time, but we see ourselves in all of them. That they're given to us so we can see how this impacts us. So the place, uh, the town of Smyrna is north of Ephesus. I tried to find a better map that's easier to read. I think I found one. So you see Ephesus there towards the bottom third of the screen. And Smyrna is up um, in a different valley. And so we see this section about the Ephesus last week was a harbor where it had a deep water harbor. And it had the ability for trade and commerce Smyrna didn't have a deep water harbor. It was still a place where ships would come. Um, It was known as a Roman city among Roman cities. It was when there was a new Caesar that was part of the land, um, Smyrna, of all the cities in this part of Asia. It was the one that was given the permission to build the first temple to the new Caesar because it was a Roman city amongst Roman cities. It had been so loyal as a Greek or as a Roman convert, as a Roman conquest and had fully embraced Roman culture from its Greek culture that they were allowed to almost self-govern. They were so Roman and so dedicated to the Roman empire that there wasn't a constant overarching, you must do what we say. There wasn't lots of conflict like we see in the cities of Jerusalem. It wasn't like that. They were fully all in Roman, happy to be part of the Roman empire, even though it's an occupying force. They walked right alongside the Romans in this town. um, There was the classic Roman yearly offering to the Caesar. So you worship Caesar. So every year, every family member was required to come to this temple, to go to church, and to burn some incense in the name of Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. You had to have that phrase, Caesar is Lord, professing your faith in Caesar and that your commitment to the Roman Empire. Now imagine a church in the midst of this that says... Jesus is my Lord. It's going to cause some tension, isn't it? There's also a large Jewish community, very large Jewish community, that had fallen into some synchronism, which means they were combining faiths and the Jewish citizens who professed a Jewish faith would then also go to this temple of Caesar and burn incense and say Caesar is Lord to get along with the government system to flow. And now you have this church plant, these Christians who refuse to follow Rome and who refuse to get along with some ways their ethnic brothers and sisters of Jewish faith, that some of these Christians had grown up Jewish converted to Christianity or now in this church and they're refusing to even be part of their culture and their part of society. They're saying, nope, we're not part of this. We're different. And so you can imagine the persecution that is landing upon these people. And so when Jesus writes this letter, he's writing to a place that is Fully committed to Roman culture. The name Smyrna, is, if you follow the Greek tradition, it has a, a connotation that there was an Amazonian woman who left Amazon and she conquered and took over the city. And it's named after her, her name was Smyrna. If you follow the Greek ideal, um, Smyrna, when you break it down in Greek, is very closely related to the spice myrrh. That this was the town where myrrh was found. And so some people, scholars, have tried to say this is Kind of like a connection to Jesus and the wise men. I think that's a huge stretch. Um, I mean, I get it because it connects to the spice, but, you know, there's salt everywhere. And I don't know if we connect every place that has salt on the table. That's Jesus because he said, be salt to the world. And every salt shaker you see is, oh, they're Christians. They have salt on the table. I don't, I think that's a giant stretch, so... I don't really buy into that because I think that's just people reaching for things. Um, but this is the ruins of a temple to Athena in modern day. It's it's the modern day city of Izmir. I'm sure I pronounced that wrong, but Izmir is, I don't know, i might even try. But all of the churches we're talking about, the seven churches, they all cease to exist. They're not there. This is the only one that's left. So Smyrna became Azir and it's the only one that's left. And you can see um, the ruins that exist, the Roman or the Greek columns with kind of the the floral, the, I don't know if it's iconic or Doric, or I don't, I don't remember. Um, I used to teach that, but I don't, who cares, right? Okay, so then, you also get into parts of Smyrna, or if modern day Izmir, and you're going to see Roman arches, Um, that there are Roman arches everywhere. And so, I I don't know that we grasp here in the United States what goes on in some of these old cities. And I, I mean, I knew it, but until we went to Israel last year, until you see it on the ground, you don't really get it. That When there's a place that has existed for thousands of years, you can't just tear everything down and rebuild brand new. It's not really a thing. Every time you're breaking ground, every time you're doing something, you're, you're, you're building civilization on top of civilization. Here, we don't do that. If your house burns to the ground or something happens or, and then you're going to rebuild, typically you've got to take everything out, put in new ground, pack the dirt, redo, make it to code, which are all good things. But we don't just build on top of ruins. But the rest of the world doesn't do that. They build on top. So when you go to some of these ancient cities, you're going to see, like this is kind of like the archaeological boneyard. They've set some things up, but then you see over here in the corner, there's all these things piled up, parts of columns, tops of columns. And then in the back, there's a parking garage and a giant house or building structure. like That's what you're going to see in these modern cities. So these places are steeped in tradition, steeped in history. And so the city of Smyrna would have this giant greek tradition so they they call it the streets of gold or the golden the golden street the main street one end was a temple to zeus the other end was a temple to athena and in the middle or other temples so it's a fully greek fully greek worshiping city and then rome comes in they go oh uh, we don't want rome to hurt us so now let's worship caesar they switch it all they change it up And then here comes some Christians in. The Jews are there. There's a big Jewish community. And they're saying, eh, you know, we can all get along. We'll do this. And these Christians come in and say, no. We're not going to Zeus. We're not going to Caesar. And we're not going to go over here to the synagogue. We have our church because Jesus Christ is our Lord. And we're only going to profess a faith in him and him alone. And that causes tension amongst the whole city. And so when Jesus is writing this letter, he's telling them, I I see what's happening. I see what you're dealing with and I'm with you. But he does not remove the tension and he does not tell them, it's gonna be okay. Just pray in my name and all your persecution ends. He doesn't say that. He won't say that because that's not how he works. We see several years later, uh, the church father, Polycarp, He was a disciple or a student of John, um, the Apostle John. And he takes over the church in Smyrna. That's where he's located. And at the end of his age, at the end of his life, um, he's refusing to pay homage to Caesar. He refuses to burn incense. He refuses to say that Caesar is Lord. And they kill him. They go to his house. They arrest him. They take him to the town center. He is burnt at the stake. And when he doesn't die in the fire, when he comes off the stake, they then stab him and make sure he's gone. And in all of what was happening, he knew what was coming, his quote, or his, there's a long story, you can read the historian's account of everything that happened, and I forget his name, it's in my notes, but I'm not going to go over there and look at it. You could find this historic account of what happened here, and his quote at the end as they're about to kill him, he says, 86 years have I served Christ, and he's never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? and he goes to be burned at the stake. The story goes that as the Roman soldier, or the officials come to arrest him, they come to his house, he invites them in, offers them food, offers them wine, and he asks them, could I just have an hour to pray before you take me? He knew it was coming, he knew he was going to die. Um, he was old, he felt like it was his time, he'd served the Lord, I'm good. They let him pray for two hours, they didn't stop him. And in those two hours, the story goes that a couple of the men that were sent Um, came to a faith in Christ because of this guy's faith. And then he goes and he's burned at the stake and his church flourishes after that. This is the city we're talking about. It's the city of Smyrna, a church plant that's in the midst of hostile territory because they refuse to bow down to the pressures from the outside and say that someone else is their king. So, first part. Verse eight. We get an introduction, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. Now, what he wrote to Ephesus, he said, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, and so we get Jesus continually saying and giving an introduction, a part of his character, but also telling us kind of what's going on in this church. And so he tells the very opening line to this church in Smyrna. I'm going to talk about persecution. He says, the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So he tells them, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. I'm the one that died and came back to life. And he's going to begin to tell them about persecution, tell them it's coming. But he's reminding them that he died and came back, that his promises are real. This isn't the promise of just a teacher saying some wise things. This is the promise of God in flesh this is the promise of the one who spoke into existence. We see in Colossians chapter one, we see that he's the one that's going to speak all the correction back in. When we get to later in revelation, that he's the guy with the sword that comes out of his mouth. He speaks creation in and he's going to speak judgment at the end. So you're like, don't forget who's writing this. This is Jesus, God in flesh, God, the son member of the Trinity, existed forever. This isn't just the wise teaching as of some punk pastor in Laramie, Wyoming who thinks he's got an opinion. This is Jesus, the author of it all, saying this to you. So then he starts, verse nine. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, a lot going on in this one line. A lot of things for us to try to unpack a little bit. The first, he says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. He knows the pain of this church in Smyrna, he knows what they're going through. I mean, can you? We'll talk about persecution in the church today and in America later. And some of you have experienced that. You've experienced someone who makes fun of you for your faith, who thinks it's silly. What are you doing? Um, Maybe even gotten into some job problems. You've had some tension at a job or tension at, you may have had that happen. You may have gotten made fun of or poked at a little bit, but I don't know. And you can correct me after the service if I'm wrong. I don't know that anyone has held a knife to your throat and asked you to denounce your faith or you're going to die today. No one's raising their hand, so we're going to say I'm good on that that's exactly what they're dealing with they have jews that are making fun of them saying you bunch of liars you're twisting the torah you're twisting the promise of the messiah he wasn't the messiah he's a rebel he was just this person the romans killed he was a zealot how dare you and so you have jews coming against these christians and then you have romans who are saying if you don't come to church or come to this temple once a year and profess." Your allegiance to Rome, we're going to come after you. So you imagine being a business owner in this, this scenario. Having your house terrorized. Your kids are going off to school. They're not going to go to the rabbinical school. They're going to go to the local school, but they're going to say, well, I don't believe when they're taught by the historian or the teacher of the class that Caesar is king, Caesar is lord. They're going to go, eh, not my king. What's going to happen to those kids? You're on a work site, a job site. And someone talks about their weekend, your faith, what's going on. and you per- This persecution is going to be thick in this town. And nowhere close to the levels that I think we can even imagine. I think of places in the world where if you say that you're going against the government, you say that you're going against the, the religion of the day, what's going to happen to you? Whether it's the Middle East, communist China. like In the last 100 years, if you, if you look at the research coming out of The Voice of the Martyrs, the group that really tracks persecution in the world, there have been 150 million Christians killed because of their faith in the last 100 years. 150 million Christians dead because they profess a faith in Jesus. In the last 100 years. I didn't believe it the first time I read that. Like, you've got to be kidding me. That's not real. That's not true. And then you start digging in and look what happens in sub-Saharan Africa and parts of India and parts of Asia. Like when I hear that, I think, well, in America, like nobody's, yeah, there's the case. There's some things that happen in churches. Some things come in, but really nobody's getting, and you look at the world. It's a fact. It's a fact. So when, like, think about what happens when you don't like a certain leader of a world power. Just pick one in your head, whichever one you dislike, and they'll say that leader is like Hitler, and that will usually jump to, which shows historical ignorance because Hitler was part of killing millions of people and persecuting millions of Jews. But they should really kind of land over here with Stalin because he he topped Hitler, he doubled, tripled what Hitler did. Then he slide over here to Mao and communist China, and then you're like, well, they kind of. Doubled what Stalin did. If you know your history at all. So you should really say, "Ah, oh, that guy, he's just like Mao. And then journalists go, who's Mao? I don't know. Because they don't read. They don't know what they're doing. And <laughs> what you should say, if you're a journalist, I'm sorry, I didn't, that wasn't a dig. I'm sure you're a very well-read, historically accurate journalist. But <laughs> you slide into what you should really say. If you really wanted to get to the most, what you should say is, that leader He's just like the anti-Christians. He hates the people of God like he hates his own people. Are you going to have anybody say that? No. No one's saying that. The church has been persecuted at length in the last 100 years. 150 million dead. And so when Jesus writes, I know your tribulation. I know what you're going through. I'm with you. I'm in this, I'm right, but I know what you're dealing with and I know your poverty. But then he says, but you're rich. Now that's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of us that are dealing with things financially now or grew up in some pretty dire financial straits. But I think we can all agree that as people who live in the United States of America, even if we don't have Excess. We've got it pretty good here. Right? I grew up pretty poor. Um, I remember my dad worked a factory job. He worked a lot of side jobs around, just put food on the table. My mom was a stay-at-home mom for several years and got a job in the school corporation as an aide, which doesn't pay a whole lot either. Didn't then, doesn't now. And so she worked really hard. And I remember certain meals we would have at our house that to this day, I won't eat I didn't like it then, and I'm not eating it now. I remember when she would make chipped beef. Mmm, And it was the cheapest cut of processed sliced meat and milk and flour, if we had milk. Sometimes it was water. You'd make this white gravy kind of stuff. And you put it on bread, and that was dinner. And I couldn't stand it then. And now, I'm not going to eat it. I grew up eating so much fried spam in my life. And I ate it. It was all we had. We ate it. And then I went on this camping trip with Boy Scouts and they gave us a can of spam to eat raw. And to this day, since I was 12 years old, I've never tasted this stuff again. It's almost like when I... Participated when I was 19 of some Kodiak snuff and I got sick. If I smell heavy wintergreen, I almost vomit. If I smell an open can of Spam, I almost go, I can't handle it. But it's all we had. It's all we had. Now there's other things we ate. I didn't know salmon was actually not shredded up and in a can <laughs> until I was probably 20. I knew it was a fish, but I thought what you did was you bought a can of salmon, you added some breadcrumbs, threw in an egg, patted it out, and then you fried it, and you made salmon patties. Now, I love those still to this day. (laughs) And I will eat those all day long. When Amber cooks salmon, oh. I know it's getting close to lunch, and I'm really hungry, and that's probably why I'm saying these things, but (laughs) there are certain things that we collectively have eaten we refuse to eat. We know, we, I would bet that most of us in this room at some point in our life have felt some form of poverty. But it has not been the type of poverty that's discussed in the scripture. And I would, I mean, I'm sure some of you have been close. We have some pretty terrific safety nets in this country, in our churches, in our communities that you won't have weeks without food. It might not be the tastiest. It might not be what you want. And it might not be easy to accept those kind of gifts. But for the most part, in our nation, we can get some help. And so I have this little caveat. If you're in a place where you need help, as Chuck challenged you to write down on a prayer list that you need something to pray, you need to tell us. It wouldn't take me very long, whether through our budget through the men and women in this congregation to say, "I got a family that's refrigerator is empty, and it will be filled in a matter of thirty minutes. I promise you, and I won't even give you chip beef." <laughs> Amen. Okay, so that's the aside. Now, Jesus is saying, I'm, "I get. He sees your pain. I see your poverty. Now, think of this poverty. This poverty is going to be because no one's going to hire you because you're a Christian." The grocery store won't serve you because you're a Christian. They won't repair you. They won't fix your house. They won't come help you. They won't. No one's, no one's going to help you because of your faith. That's the kind of poverty we're talking about here. And Jesus says, you're rich though. You're rich. Now he's going to get to why. He's going to talk about eternity. You're eternally rich. And then he mentions this synagogue of Satan. And I have to give you another warning and another, please don't do this. This is the first time in Revelation, um, we'll see here in a second, not this part, but in a minute, that the devil is the one who actively is in charge in moving in persecution. We'll talk about spiritual warfare in a second, but this is not saying that all Jews in a synagogue are agents of Satan. This passage has been used as a a proof text to justify anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish behavior, anti-Jewish laws, anti-Jewish thinking. And I will challenge you that anybody that comes to those conclusions does not have the capacity to think clearly. Jesus was Jewish. All 12 of his disciples and throw Paul in there were all Jewish. The covenant made from Abraham was to the Jews. We see that the Jews are going to be a blessing to the nations through David and to Jesus and to the Savior of the world. To think that the Bible would justify anti Semitism proves to me that you've never read the Bible. And I would question your ability to think logically, and perhaps we should keep you away from power tools as well. <laughs> Anybody that tries to land there does not understand the Word of God, is not even trying. They're proof texting, they're taking one text out of context and saying, See, we have to, it's garbage. Run from that. So when you see this, this is Jesus speaking to a specific church, a specific synagogue, in a specific city that's persecuting the church and saying that Jesus is the Messiah, and they're coming after them. So he's saying that these Jews in this synagogue are agents of Satan. We're going to see the devils in persecution, and we know that because in this town they have decided, as even as Jews have decided to be ethnic Jews and not practicing Jews, and they're professing. Not a faith, but an allegiance to Caesar. And any synagogue that would have an allegiance to a false god isn't really a synagogue. That's what he's saying. Does that make sense? But please don't use this. If you do, stop it. We need to talk and I'll get you some help. It may come from a firm shaking from me or we'll work it out theologically too. Okay? Verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. It gives us a window into the rest. Several other times in Revelation we see that the devil, Satan himself, is in charge and part and active in our persecution. Which a lot of churches in this day and age do not want to hear. It freaks us out to talk about demons and angels and no, there's really, is that really happening? It freaks us out. We want to ignore it. We want to put our heads in the sand and say, no. And I have to be honest, I'm that person too. I don't want to think about it. But I've experienced too many things in my life as a Christian that I've seen. I can't say that I've been visited by a demon. But there have been two times in counseling someone in their sin I felt this overwhelming presence of darkness. And when I called out the one and asked if they were a demon sitting in my midst, I got the thousand yard stare, the blank look right through my soul. No reaction. And I was a little freaked out. I continued. I was I'm praying in my head the whole time. And it was, it was a situation in which this husband had cheated on his wife for the third time. And she went off to the bathroom to vomit and he was sitting here and I just asked him because I couldn't fathom how this could happen, how this continued to happen unless this was someone who was possessed by a demon. I, I didn't know. I got the thousand yard stare. She comes back into the room and it was like everything changed. All of a sudden he's back involved in this conversation and mad. But in that, that moment. Now, can I tell you that am I going to sit here and look at all you? He was a demon possessed person. Right? I'm not going to say that. He didn't speak some weird language or grow a horn. I don't know. But I felt an overwhelming darkness. And that's, I believe, exactly. That's, who, that's what was happening. He is possessed. But you have to know that you have victory over all of that. That as a child of God, indwelt of the Holy Spirit, you don't have to, you have authority and power over all of that. Now, that's a whole other sermon. But Jesus is telling them, you're going to suffer, and the devil's the one that's doing it. He hates you. Now, this begs the question if the devil's coming against you, and we see the Bible has authority over the devil, and we have authority over Satan, then what is he doing? How is this happening? How is this? If the devil cannot steal my salvation, he can't remove me from the grace of God, then what is happening? Well, he can crush your witness. He can crush your body. He can take you out of the fight. He can cause what's happening to you, bring fear to people who are close to a faith in Christ, about to make that profession. He can take you out. And so, in those moments, we're going to see here in the next line, he's telling us to be faithful unto death. And he's telling them, you're going to go to prison, some of you are going to go to jail. And he gives us a number, 10 days. Now people argue over this, so what this means. Some believe, and I think this is probably more true to the story, is that there was like a 10-day process, that if you were imprisoned by the Roman authorities, then in about 10 days, that was kind of like your due process. 10 days, speedy trial, think of that kind of stuff, and then you're going to be killed. Others would suggest that this is Jesus saying that our persecution is not going to be forever. That he will hold us in his hand and we will have eternity with him. And the number of 10 days just kind of lays out. It's just a number to say that our persecution won't be forever. That he will remove us from that and it might be unto death. I, I tried to research Roman law, ancient law. I couldn't find a 10 day thing or in a code. It was all over the place. I think that makes more sense. Especially with the next line that says unto death. That he's saying, some of you are going to go to jail. It'll be the due process. You're, he's telling them, you're going to die. You're going to die. The devil's coming after you. You're going to die. Now, for most of us, living in the United States, that's not going to be a thing for us. We're not going to experience that. But the enemy still wants to persecute you. And if he can't take you away from the arms of grace, he's going to take away your joy. He's going to attempt to rob you of your peace of he's going to come after you. He wants to rob, steal, and destroy the people of God. If he can't take you from heaven, he will ruin your potential on this earth, if he can do it. And I gotta be honest, I, I, this stuff, I don't wanna think about it. I don't wanna think about it. I don't wanna think about demons waging war with angels all around me. I don't wanna think about demons trying to come after me. I don't wanna think about that stuff. But you've got to know that the devil isn't God. He's not God. He's not omniscient, he's not omnipotent, He's not omnipresent. He's got an omni. God is everywhere. God knows everything, and God is all-powerful. Satan is not. He's not. He's a demon. He's a fallen angel. And we are better than angels, according to the scripture. The angels wish they were us. So now you have a fallen angel, a third of the angels are fallen. They hate who we are because we're entrusted with the gospel. We're loved by God. And in the end, we are going to be elevated to a higher level. We're better than angels. So they hate you. So is Satan really going to be the one to come after you or me? Probably not. But there's a third of the angels who are demons. Who have been on this planet for a long time. And they know how to get to us. I think some of you heard me tell the story. I don't know if Eli's ever heard this, but he's going to hear it today. When Eli was about three, from the ages of three to, I don't know, eight, nine, um, but especially from like three to five, six, I was really worried about him. He would wake up with these vivid, terrifying, come running to our bedroom. Something's coming after him. Something's chasing him. And it freaked me out. I'm researching night terrors and what's happening and stress in his life. And do we need to stop giving him chicken nuggets because there's things in there and what's that, what's happening. And you know, you, you know, there's, they in apple juice. There's something because it's GMO. I don't know. And I just like, I don't. And I would talk to him about it. Like what happens? What is it, buddy? Something he'd wake up, he'd come running in and he, you could console him and put him right back to bed. And the next morning he'd wake up and he go, well, I didn't do that. He wouldn't have a recollection. Recollect, he would remember. <laughs> and I started praying with him. We prayed every night before we went to bed. And I wanted to pray. Jesus, keep my boy safe. Don't let him have a bad dream. I don't want, in the name of Jesus, no more bad dreams. we we'll need to have another one. And Eli even asked, I don't know if he remembers this. He even asked, Dad, I keep praying for the bad dreams not to be there and I keep having them. Why doesn't Jesus answer my prayers? Like that's hard from an adult in the midst of pain, but your boy or your daughter, but your kid, that's tough. It's real tough. So we would pray for him to know that Jesus loves him, that Jesus is for him. Um, I wouldn't pray that um, in the name of Jesus, they're all going to go away? Because if they keep happening, then he's going to doubt that what he had just said, that Jesus even loves him. And I started praying like crazy over his room. I'd pray when he'd come by. When he was asleep, I'd walk by and go to bed. I'd walk by and pray again. I kept praying, kept praying, kept praying. And, and I don't know. I mean, there's a is it a physiological something kids go through? Yeah, maybe. But I felt, and I could be wrong, but I, I think I'm right. I know I'm right. That he... As a pastor, trying to affect change in people's lives, that Jesus is better than the world. If you're going to come after me as a man, you're going to come after my kids. My family's everything. You're going to come after my wife. You're going to come after me. And some of the biggest stressors in my life are when, if Amber's sick, if something's going on, if my kids are in danger. If That's the fastest way to get me to go, Lord, are you even there? And so I pray a lot. Like I remember when the plane takes off and I'm going overseas to teach pastors how to preach the word of God. I'm going to land in Africa for two weeks or in Nepal for a week. And I, as the plane takes off, I'm like, Lord, take care of my family. If I die on this plane, I know my kids are saved. I know they love the Lord. I pray that you'll keep them. I pray. I know this is going to suck if I'm not there, but please, please, please. It can cripple me from even doing ministry, the fear of what's going to happen to my family. I got to give it all away. I got to. So don't just think that when we read persecution, it's jail time, murder, execution in a public square. It can be the kind of persecution. It can be devil sending his angels or his, well, fallen angels, sending his agents, sending demons after you to chip away, to take away, to rob you of your joy. But the ultimate goal of people saved by grace captured by the gospel, to be attacked by demons is so that you would not share your faith. Persecution still comes our way. Still comes our way. Living in this nation at this time with all the benefits that we have in this country, it's, he sends our way. You got to pray against them. Now the end of the story is eventually that all ended. Eli doesn't have those problems. It's, now he's a teenager, it's hard to get him out of bed. So it's not, he sleeps just fine. <laughs> but there was a season where I was really, I felt the weight of spiritual warfare in my house. Not that I don't feel it anymore, but it felt real heavy and real real in that season. And you may feel that. That could be the way that the devil's going to, he can't throw you in real prison, but he's persecuting you. He then tells us to trust this even unto death. To trust him in persecution unto death. This is why, because of this part of verse 10, I think it's leading to these 10 days or a due process leading into you're going to die. He's telling them you're going to go to prison. This city hates you. You've been persecuted by the enemy and you're going to die. And I'm going to give you the crown of life even in your death. He's, He's pushing in that this world is temporary. Pain is coming Don't stop preaching about Jesus, and it might even cost you your life, but don't stop. This world is just a blip compared to the eternity you're going to have forever. Uh, That didn't work. Verse 11, he closes. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. If you're listening, know that as you're faithful even unto death, you will not suffer in the second death, which we know from later in Revelation is hell. That you may experience pain, persecution, terror here on earth, but you will have forever. In eternity. And it's going to be awesome. Now, that does not diminish our efforts here on earth. It doesn't mean we shouldn't enjoy what we have here. It's why I, you enjoy all the goodness that God has for you here. But how you get through all the pain and the suffering is knowing that there's a beautiful eternity awaiting you. But That doesn't diminish the pain you feel now. Like we can't be that way. To bear each other's burdens, so just as Chuck shared, we tell say tell you all the time, you, we're here to bear your burdens with you. This passage is telling them, because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're off the hook. Doesn't mean you get a free pass. And any church that would say those things doesn't know the Bible. Well, just name it, claim it, get this, do this, send this in. It's all going to be great. You're going to have storehouses laden with all... and It's going to be terrific. And you're going to have private jets and three of them and all the... If God blesses you in that way, it's so that you can be a blessing to others. It's not for you to say, Jesus loves me. So I get a plane. I know Jesus loves me. He's not giving me a plane yet. Now, I would accept it. That would be terrific. He hasn't given it to me yet. And in this passage, we're seeing, listen up. Jesus says, I know your pain. I see your suffering. I know your poverty. Pain's coming. Pain's coming. But it won't last forever. And if it's unto death, then you get the prize. You get Jesus one of the church fathers early in the first part of the, um, I think it was the second century, um, Tertullian, when he was asked about persecution, it's part of a longer quote, but he was asked about persecution, asked about the church, asked about what's happening and why would God do this? And he came back with this reply. We multiply whenever we are mowed down by you, talking to the Romans. The blood of Christians is seed. He meant seed for the gospel. So whatever you come against us, when you come after us, when you mow us down, you just spread the seed of truth. And in those 150 million Christians that have died in the last 100 years, there's story after story after story of Christ being made more famous even in those stories. There's There's a Christian missionary family in India. I forget their name. I was reading it last night um they the the wife the the husband was a pastor and the wife was a nurse and they were manning a leper colony in India and as the husband and the two boys were out doing some stuff in the community a group of hindus came and swarmed them they jumped in their car and locked the doors and they disabled the vehicle um they weren't able to get moving and they doused the thing with gasoline and lit it on fire and as the boys these were young boys like 7 and 11 we trying to get out of the car. They kept kicking the door shut and they were cheering and, and, and laughing and having a great time as making sure that this part of this young family burned to death in the car. So they die and they're thrilled. They finally got some of these nasty Christians out. Um, and then as word got back to the hospital, to this um, clinic taking care of lepers, the wife finds out she's devastated. She has a daughter. She's devastated. She's devastated. And the patients in this leper colony go to the car, retrieve the bodies, bring them back, and put them in the backyard and bury them and honor their deaths um, as they had honored their lives. And that wife refused to leave. She stayed for an additional 20 years and ministered to this group, these groups of people. And amongst this community, the name of Christ became famous and grew Exponentially. Why do you think that is? Two things. One, they saw the the truth of no matter what happens to your family, you're going to profess Christ no matter what. In the midst of devastation, in the midst of pain, not happy about it. It's not like she wrote a letter and said, I'm glad they're gone. Praise Jesus. It's not going to happen. In the midst of pain and terror and frustration and sadness and questioning and doubt, she stuck to the mission. She stuck to the mission. And then these lepers, who are seen as less than human by the rest of Hindu society, found love and grace from Christians when their own culture and their own people said they were worthless. That the reason they were lepers were, was because they lived a bad life previously and this was their punishment for living bad lives and they deserve what they have. And so it, it drives me a little bit crazy When people start running around, you know, talking about Hinduism and how great and beautiful and and they don't understand how detrimental it is to the down and out in a society. It's great if you're on top. If you're the Brahmins and you're on top, it's great. Sounds great. But when you're down at the bottom and you're the Dalits, which are the untouchables, you're the clay pots, you're the the throwaway of society, like the lepers, you feel hopelessness and lost. And and here comes some Christians that come along and say, we got you. Jesus cares for you. Jesus loves you. If all the, the refugees are fleeing Syria, and fleeing the Middle East, and landing all throughout Europe, and especially in Greece, I've got some friends through the Training Leaders International spend a lot of time in Greece, and they continually hear these stories of Jesus appearing in dreams and Muslims coming to faith in Christ because as they march through parts of the Middle East and the, their Muslim brothers and sisters would have nothing to do with them, these Christians who they thought were enemies and hated them, are welcoming them and serving them, and they're coming to faith in Christ. And you look at us here in the United States. In just the last couple weeks, um, it comes up every couple election cycles, where the church refuses to approve of cultural change, refuses to burn our incense and say Caesar is Lord, And there's always the certain, there's always, there's a bill that tries to pass every year which removes, removes the nonprofit status from churches who refuse to toe the line of the cultural change. And every year, every couple of years, I get asked, what are we going to do? What are we going to do if we don't, if, if they take away our nonprofit status? What are we going to do as a church? What if they close our doors? What are we going to do? Well, I'll. I'll go get a job in town somewhere. Hopefully I I still have employable skills outside of running my mouth all the time. And I've got a barn. And in the summer months, we'll all go there and we'll just have church and we'll keep professing the the truth of God. We'll preach the gospel. We're going to go for it. But what if we don't have a building? And I go, you've missed the whole point. I failed you as a pastor. I stink at this job. What are we going to do? We might have to do things a little different, but nothing's going to change. All we need is this, and we have church. All we need is the word of God and each other, and we have church. Just in the last couple primary debates, it became a hot-button issue. What are we going to do if places won't capitulate we're going to... Sue them and put them out of business and stop them and pass laws and well, I'm not telling you who to vote for because I think they're all corrupt and but that's a whole other part of my cynicism. I don't trust any of them. Um, but if they made me supreme ruler, I would make it. I'd run it perfectly. But the whatever comes our way, we profess Christ, Him crucified, Savior of the world. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Whether your business gets dinged or you lose a promotion or all the stuff that could come your way. Are you going to stop professing Christ? No, you're not. And if you would, then I would question whether or not you're in that synagogue over there instead of following Christ. I want to leave you with one last quote. A quote from scripture. So it's not really a quote. It's I'm a, a teaching, right? In Philippians, you've heard this before. Philippians 121. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Now this is Paul telling this church in Philippi um, that, and it, especially amongst one of his most frustrating, he's one of the most frustrating people in the world, to Jews and to Romans and to people trying to persecute him. Because they would come at him. We're going to kill you. We're going to take you out. We're going to to die his game. Go ahead, kill me. Oh, okay, we're going to imprison you. To live as Christ, I'm going to evangelize all these people in the prison cell. We're going to sing praises and we're going to. Oh, I hate this guy. Let's kill him. <laughs> all right, send me to heaven. That's the prize. Oh no, we're going to exile you. We're going to throw. We're going to beat you. That's all right because my scars are part of my life and I'm going to go sh- like they. They hated him. And so he's writing a letter to the church in Philippi and he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm alive, I have work to do. If I die, I get the prize. And I like how the message says it. Alive, I'm Christ's messenger. Dead, I'm his bounty. I'm his reward, I'm his prize, I'm his joy. Life versus even more life, I can't lose. Now, I don't study the message, but man, I like to read it. And if we live a life like this, that says, if I've got breath in my lungs until the day he takes me home, I'm a messenger of Christ. And if he takes me home, I get to be in the joy of the Lord. I'll never forget um, my grandmother about five months before she died. And some of you have heard this before, but it, this reminds me of it. I went and visit her. We were home for Christmas. We go to visit her, and she's in the hospital. And I went up, everyone else was, I went up by myself hang out with her, wanted to pray with her, wanted to talk to her, ask her how she was doing. Um, she'd said for a while she's ready to, to go to heaven and be with my grandfather. Um, she'd been, she was in and out of the hospital for several years. And she just sat there with me, and she goes, Mike, I'm ready to die. I want to be with Grandpa. But I don't think it's right to just give up. You're right, Grandma. Don't give up. But I don't think it's right either. I don't think you just lay down and let it happen, but I also don't think you fight it to the end. And if you're ready for the prize, then go for the prize. She goes, well, I don't think I'm ready just yet. I'm going to get out of here and I want to have you and Amber and the kids over and have a Pepsi. She always had cans of Pepsi. And to this day, Amber doesn't really ever drink a soft drink. Um, I... Cannot say that. And there's many times when me and the kids will go get a Pepsi and it's like, it just reminds us all of Grandma Annabelle. So then when she died six months later and we got to see her, she looked me in the eyes and said, I think it's time. She died 36 hours later. I got to officiate her funeral. She got her prize. Do you live life like that? Do you live a life like that now as a 43-year-old? Or as an 11-year-old? That if I'm alive and have breath, I have a message from Christ that the world needs to hear. And if I die in the persecution of professing that message, I get the joy of the Lord. So my choices are a full life and the joy of God here, or more joy in death. Now, this is not me telling you to go be martyrs and run into the fray and just go off and do dumb stuff. But I am telling you not to shirk away, not to back down from professing the truth no matter what comes your way. That's the message of the church in Smyrna. It's a church that Jesus was proud of, but he was warning them and telling them pain's coming. But you are going to get your prize. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we have in your word. And I pray that we would see this message coming out of Smyrna, out of this letter in Revelation that you've written us, that there is an amazing prize ahead of us in eternity with you forever. And I pray, Lord, as we go about our day, about our week, about the years ahead of us, that we would see that our relationship with you is everything. It gives us joy. It gives us strength. It gives us purpose. It gives us a mission to share that hope and that truth with all who would listen. And Lord, in the midst of it, if we face persecution from anybody around us, Lord, I pray you'd give us the strength to stand strong in it and never back down. We love you. Amen.